Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This week's episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by the new film, The Big Sick. From producer Judd Apatow comes a new comedy based on the real-life romance between Silicon Valley's Camille Nanjiani and grad student Emily Gordon, who fall in love but struggle as cultures clash. When Emily contracts a mysterious illness, Kumail finds himself navigating the medical crisis with her parents, while dealing with the emotional tug-of-war between his family and his heart. Don't miss the film critics are calling the most authentic romantic comedy in years, which also stars Ray Romano, Holly Hunter, and Edie Bryant. Get tickets to see The Big Sick in select theaters now everywhere July 14th. I highly recommend it. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief critic, joined as always by our editor-at-large, Ann Thompson, out in Los Angeles. And, and we've got a lot of stuff to talk about this week, a lot of kind of interesting news items that we definitely did not expect to be part of the cycle back when the week started off. You know, we, we tend to assume that this movie's opening, we're going to be talking about its award season prospects, or how is this doing at the box office, things like that. But every now and then, something materializes that is associated with something completely outside of what we assume is part of the calendar. And that certainly happened a couple of times just in the last few days. And the first thing that I think we should dig through is the story associated with Star Wars, with Phil Lord and Chris Miller getting essentially fired from the project and replaced within a 24-hour window by Ron Howard. And what I think is really notable about this is that there was this real uh, kind of sense that Star Wars was being reinvented by different kinds of talented, visionary types of people. And what this counter-narrative gives us is this idea that actually... The same people outside of George Lucas who were guiding Star Wars along over the years are still basically running the show, and as much as it might seem like there's room for creativity and people to play around, at the end of the day, the the sense that you really get from what these reports are telling us is that it's really Lawrence Kasdan and, and Kathy Kennedy who are running the show, much in the same way that they've sort of informed the legacy of Star Wars for decades. And what I find really discouraging about this news is that it doesn't bode well for a universe that is just going to keep moving along. You know, the kind of sense that franchise filmmaking is bad was counteracted by the idea that genuinely interesting people were going to start telling stories in this sandbox. And now I get the sense that actually... there's no real room for risk because they want something that's going to play the way that they want it to play. And so I'm concerned that the idea of filmmakers being attracted to these movies is no longer going to be uh, as valuable as it once was. Do Do you feel similarly? I think it's interesting because Kennedy has a lot of power, as George Lucas did in the past, over what goes on at Lucasfilm and the Star Wars universe. And she's a little bit like the Kevin Feige figure at Marvel, who's keeping all of these balls juggled in the air and they all have to fall in the right place and belong in the same 
universe. And so her job, as she sees it, of course, is to is to keep it straight. And if someone like Gareth Edwards goes off the track, then she brings in Tony Gilroy to uh, on Rogue One to to straighten that out. And uh, it, you know, it, as Kevin Feige did with Edgar Wright. I mean, when they weren't in tune on on uh on ant-man you know edgar wright went on his way and these are i think edgar wright and uh lord and miller are actually quite equivalent because these are filmmakers who have established themselves they're not up and coming like colin trevorrow they are um really strong voices and they have authority and, and they're running their uh, Brickburg universe. They have like so many projects, so many different Lego movies and other things that they're working on. Uh, they have more than enough to go back to, but it, it is very unusual to take someone off at this stage in the middle of production when they've already established the characters and to put Ron Howard in isn't a bad idea. It's not going to, upset the apple cart. He's a perfectly competent, perfectly uh, authoritative director who can do comedy and and action and anything you want him to do, he can do. But it, it, he's going to just be executing what, they, what they've started. And Lawrence Kasdan is an unusually strong writer for uh, a situation like this. And I, I bet they would have given it to him to direct if there hadn't been DGA rules that prevent that from, from happening. And one of the things that I kind of get from listening to you work through some of this stuff is that you have this fascinating kind of uh, contrast between two different generations of filmmaking in a way. I mean, Lord and Miller, Edgar Wright, I mean, these are people who in the last 15 to 20 years started making movies in a climate that... Uh, had a different set of expectations, and the kinds of movies that they were making were, by and large, original properties or new riffs with Lord Miller and 21 Jump Street on original properties that uh, were relatively cheap and afforded some kind of uh, freedom. Well, they've earned that they freedom. Did. Sure, but somebody like Ron Howard is the same generation. He's a studio as, guy. Yeah, he's a studio guy, from and, and also came out of a different era. I mean, he... His first movie was a Roger Corman movie, and he worked his way into the studio arena during the 80s, during a very different kind of uh, period for filmmaking. And I think it's, it, it almost is it's so unsurprising that it's, it's, it's surprising that we didn't get to this point earlier. You know, that you could tell maybe with Rogue One that a Gareth Edwards who made that great movie Monsters on his own laptop doing his own effects had a rough time, and then the next step was something like this happening. Well, and the people that can make make it work in their universe, and I'm suggesting without knowing the answer yet, but it feels like, you know, not only J.J. Abrams, but, uh, you know, Ryan Johnson and Colin Trevorrow, they're willing to, to stay inside the lines, to color inside sure, the lines. And I it. think... I think that they can they can do they can have their either they're so good and and they're so trusted that that they're let it, they're able that that they're that they are shepherding the 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 project inside the same universe whereas Miller and Lord on their you know feel like they earned the right to to bring their own comedic take to this and obviously uh Kennedy and and Kasdan especially with Han Solo, this character that Kasdan helped to create, you know, um, 
they really they really don't want uh, someone to take it in the wrong direction. So yeah, that's it's I, a fascinating thing. That, it's not as exciting. It's not as I'd like to see what they would have yeah. done. And, and and somebody, you know, should one day get more of that information out of them publicly, so we can really get a sense of, as it's been said, the Han Solo film that could have been. But as I said in the story we were doing earlier today, I mean, this is like a big universe of possibilities. To me, Han Solo is such a complete figure in pop culture lore. This isn't even a movie that I really get excited about as, as a possibility, irrespective of whether it is the, the, the Miller and Lord comedic take or whatever this Western throwback thing Kathy Kennedy has been throwing around. I mean, they're, both of those things, to me, would be better serviced by some sort of more original idea. But So at the end of the day, what we're talking about here is just studio dynamics, the way that franchises work and branding works, basically running the show more than anything else. And, and that, to me, is, is very frustrating because, yes, J.J. Abrams, first of all, he comes from TV. It's a more rigid medium. In some ways, it has tighter deadlines. There's, you have to work with compromises to some degree. Somebody like Ryan Johnson, kind of a, a, a more mild-mannered fellow who's been working his way steadily up to a kind of genre film on this scale. If you look at Looper, it's like baby steps towards Star Wars. Well, that showed what he could yeah. do, and I'm pretty excited but to see what Ryan course, Johnson can do. But it's a do. real contrast to to uh, to what Lord and Miller were doing, and, and the Gareth Edwards thing as well. So on some level, it's like whatever these interstitial Star Wars films were designed to do, that was the miscalculation. That we could do some more smaller, more, more idiosyncratic Star Wars movies and bring some other kinds of talents in there to shake that up. That's just obviously not happening anymore because now they have Ron Howard. So whatever comes next as, as they keep building the universe uh, is probably going to be more about safe bets than it's going to be about these riskier possibilities. I mean, that's just my Well, Ron, Star not, Ron Howard is someone that you can count on. To, the other reason for Ron Howard to even agree to do this is because he's had uh, some less than stellar performances of late and he True. could use a hit. But So it's not a bad calculation on his part. But I liked the idea of giving younger filmmakers a chance to connect you know, and reinvent this material with a younger generation. So this is, this is an interesting uh, wrinkle. Um, I was and also I'd... thinking about how the Justice League movie, because of this tragedy with Zack Snyder's daughter dying, uh, is now being redone by Joss Whedon. And when we have the both of these movies to look at, I mean, one of them, probably the Han Solo movie, is, is going to have a little bit more of a production element. And I assume they're going to have to shoot more, uh, whereas Joss Whedon seems to be dealing mostly with the film in post-production. But there is something fascinating about very specific, notable filmmakers entering at very late stages and having to figure out how to salvage something that in some ways is their movie and in other ways is not. So we'll have two very different kinds of sort of temple type of movies to discuss in that respect very soon. And, you know, I guess the next year and change is going to be fascinating in that respect. So the other thing that happened this week that threw everybody for a loop was yet another actor, a great actor, declaring that they didn't want to act anymore so we have uh daniel day lewis coming up again with you know working with paul thomas anderson who of course he worked with um before and and won an you know he's 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 someone who won an oscar for steven steel spielberg's lincoln and and he's incredibly good and there will be blood and he hasn't worked since 
Lincoln. And so the question is going to be, you know, whether he sticks to his guns, but he's always taken off time. He's always been someone who has tried to reconnect with the world before he reenters a complete immersion in a character like when he was on Lincoln playing Lincoln, the president, you know, all through the entire production. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things about the the announcement and the way that it came out is that it it was really informed by its timing. You know, like on on the one hand, you could see the argument for waiting until this PTA movie comes out and then riding into the wind, sort of like, here's my last gift for you. But now we actually have this one specific thing to anticipate as the entire world contemplates the legacy, you know, that he's leaving behind. So it's like, whatever the outcome is of this PTA movie, I mean, he's a pretty reliable guy if you like PTA movies, you know that this Daniel Day-Lewis performance is going to be so informed collectively by the people who are seeing it at that time by the knowledge that it's his last performance, which has all kinds of possibilities associated with it. Is it going to help his awards chances? Is it going to help the movie's commercial success? Well, you know, unfortunately, when Heath Ledger was no longer with us, uh, and left us way too soon. Um, it did help him get um, attention for for the for the Batman movie for for playing the Joker. Um, and the other person I came that comes to mind who said he would stop acting completely was Anthony Hopkins. And of course, he changed yeah. his mind. <laughs> and Steven Soderbergh. <laughs> Steven Soderbergh said he was never going to direct again, and he's making a movie again. So. Uh, you know, we don't have to hold Daniel Day-Lewis to his word. But I think what happens is that when he makes these movies, he goes into them to, to such a degree and at such length and depth that it becomes wrenching and difficult and horrible to even imagine doing it again. So I, I feel for the guy. Yeah, although I, on, on some level I feel like the the problem with these kinds of announcements is that they really distract from the individual films. I mean, I I personally like different Daniel Day-Lewis movies for different reasons, less because he's such a talented actor and more because, you know, Lincoln gives him this specific vessel in which he has to play this character. In There Will Be Blood, it's, it's it's such a different kind of a thing. You know, to me, it's like what what we lose when we lose Daniel Day-Lewis is the is that we just don't know how valuable he could be at any moment. You know, it's like really hard for like for everybody to to kind of look back on on what this career was and say, you know, he was great at X, Y, and Z. It was more like he kept surprising us with new twists and turns with the kinds of characters he was able to do. And by stepping out of the arena, it's like this is somebody who has cracked the code in acting in a way that most of us, I think, have never seen before, at least not like that. You know, no, the, it's he's a, yes, he's time. a method actor, but he's something else, too. And, and somehow with this nimble filmography, it seemed like he was picking certain projects that were allowing movies to exist in ways that we otherwise would not know about them. And so it's like, on some level, I just feel like we're being deprived of something really cool he could do next year or three years down the line, whenever he chose to work again. So maybe he'll take some time off and realize that on his own terms. But I, I find that process, which is just so mysterious to m- most of us, uh, just a really fascinating one to scrutinize because when you look at these performances, they just don't look the same. And that's part of what makes them so amazing is that there's no specific Daniel Day-Lewis touch in a way. 
You know, he melds himself to filmmakers, which is uh, something that I think is also valuable for directors because it allows them to, you know, kind of wrestle with whatever material they're wrestling with through the lens of this very talented person. And, well, the uh, reason I think that he won the Oscar for, for Lincoln is because at the end of the process and everybody's looking at Lincoln, you know, with all of its nominations and all of the good things that Spielberg did to make that movie great, you end up realizing that only Daniel Day-Lewis could have delivered that exactly, performance. Exactly, exactly. A lot and, of people and, would have And no one it else could have done it. And it, he was responsible for that movie being so great and elevated everything around him. And, and so that was, that was what, what, what made it uh, something that could not be denied. Well, speaking of movies about the Civil War, I think we should talk about The Beguiled. Uh, it's finally opening this week. We've talked about it a few times before, but the news cycle evolved with the recognition that while the Don Siegel version of The Beguiled has this African-American character, because, look, at that time, they probably were going to have an African-American character working in the house with them. This movie does not. There's a BuzzFeed article where somebody asked her about Sofia Coppola about this. She said she didn't like the representation of the African-American character in that movie and chose not to include that. And that explicit decision, as well as a line that she said where the film doesn't, isn't about race, it's about other kinds of themes, has, has really created an intense backlash to the movie. I, it's really hard to, for us, I think, to sort out exactly where the boundary lies here. I think that you know, it is notable that um, she made this conscious creative decision and it wasn't like an accident. And on well, some level, that a, hurts the movie. Well, it, I don't... This is a tough one because who are we to tell her how to do her job? You know, she has to make her... She made the decision that she wasn't going to show the scene in gory detail that was shown in the original Don Siegel movie where you're cutting off Colin Farrell's leg, you know, and, you know, and you see it, you know, she, she, she didn't want to do that. That was something she didn't want to deal with. And in this case, it's, it's an omission that she didn't want to deal with this either. Um, it's a white girl's school there in the, you know, civil war South, whatever. I, I have, I don't have a big issue with it, but, um, it's, people can criticize her if they want to, but I don't see how, you know, that, that was her aesthetic decision. And I, I have to say that, you know, she's just going to have to live with it. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem, though, is that how much does somebody have to live with something like this until it becomes sort of, you know, melded to the life of the movie itself? I mean, you remember what happened with uh, Zero Dark Thirty and the whole torture thing, which was, you know, definitely a narrative that was started by somebody who wanted to hurt that movie. And then and it, it, was, it was effective, It was very effective. Actually. I mean, even, yeah. even to the point where you had, I remember the New York Film Critics Circle, you had uh, Bigelow say, you know, depiction is not endorsement. What she was really saying was, we did our homework on this. They tortured this guy. This happened. We're not saying it was a good thing. We're just saying that it did produce a specific result in these circumstances. But look, nuance is not something that works really well in these situations. And it certainly isn't going to work for the beguiled for her to try to provide some sort of nuanced response. And she's a nuanced person and a nuanced filmmaker. So how long is this going to hurt this movie that there's a lot of anticipation around, a lot of people like Sofia Coppola movies. We just live in a much more charged environment now. Which, I don't know, you know if that's going to have traction or not. I mean, you, you also 
um, picked up on some reservations that people have about the way that the Pakistanis were portrayed in the big six. Well, the big what, six what, situation. What was going on with that? The context for this was I was asked to moderate a press conference at Junket for the big six in New York, which you know I hadn't been to one of these things since my college days in the newspaper then, because it's like basically the people who were rejected on their one-on-one requests, they stuff them all into a room in a hotel and just get to talk to all of the cast and everybody all at once. And they asked me to moderate it, which I thought was an interesting opportunity. But what was notable was there was a a South Asian journalist there who asked the white actors of the cast how much they were aware of the tradition of arranged marriage in Pakistani uh, culture uh, before they got involved with the movie. And there was a kind of stumbling Ray Romano response, and there was, it was an, a couple interesting ways that people sort of wrestled with it. But then Zoe Kazan kind of took this zigzag or tangent to say, I saw some reactions online to the trailer that were complaining about the depiction of South Asian women in the film. And uh, basically what she was saying was, you should go see the movie. It's, it's much more complicated than that. And um, then uh, there was a little bit more of a conversation about it. And I talked to Kumail Nanjiani about it. He's, you know stars in it, wrote the movie. And what he was saying was that you know, he didn't even realize that she had noticed that. He noticed that. What he found really frustrating about it was that this was so, such a, so specifically about his experience, like his mother trying to force these women on him for arranged marriages. He comes over and there's a prospective date there, even though he's dating somebody else, but he's afraid to tell his parents about it because she's white. You know, the, the, the film is about that specific experience. So to put him in this position where he's representing South Asian women in a negative light, on some level it, it doesn't address what the movie's really about, which is that this is a guy who has distanced himself from the culture that he's seen. So the way in which he relates to these women is, is how the film depicts them, because it's his world. And it's, just, it's, a, it's a troubling thing on some level because this movie in some ways stands a chance at speaking to the South Asian community that is completely underrepresented in movies of this, in this country. I mean, a lot of Bollywood movies do well here because there's an audience for them. But in terms of films that are really about their lives in America, it's just not there. So I, am, I don't think it's going to hurt the box office for this movie, but I am curious to see if it's a conversation that is ongoing. And what I picked up on just being in the room with them is that they are, the, the cast and crew are very, very sensitive to this. And um, I don't think they are going to stand down or try to dodge it if it comes up more with respect to the film. So it's such a it's such a nuanced and I, I interviewed um, Michael Showalter, the director, and what I learned from that was that there was a very long and very very deep. Uh, ongoing development of that screenplay that and 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 all of the words and all of the scenes and all of the balance between the different characters they actually pushed Nanjiani uh the producers uh Judd Apatow and and Barry Mandel to add more about his actual details of that family life. And of course, you've got to be careful with, those with. Sort of, that sort of backstory because then it's like a couple of white producers pushing the young Pakistani. But he was, you know? it was painful material. Yeah. It was yeah, difficult yeah, yeah, yeah. for That's him. The so they, they recognized that if they were going to show the back and forth between him and the, and, and the young woman's parents and, and get into who they were and what was going on from their side, that he needed balance 
on his side. It was almost a storytelling thing. So, so they really worked hard to give everybody equal time and, and to provide a, a real context for what was going on in that movie that was responsible. And at the same time, very entertaining and very funny. And they took it out and previewed it and did all the things, you know, that Apatow does to make sure that everything is tight and all the laughs are playing the right way. And I, I would hate to see political correctness get in the way of this movie becoming the big hit that it deserves to be. Also opening opposite Transformers the last night, it should be noted. It's certainly been noted a lot by the people involved with the big sick. I recall that this is like something that happens quite a bit. The idea of summer counterprogramming to big blockbusters is actually sure. quite smart. Nothing new. But I did get the sense from Kamel and other people that they weren't so sure that, you know, the this distribution company I mean, these are not industry minded people and they're they, for for him and his wife, it's the first time they've been through this. The idea of being positioned on the calendar opposite this giant movie probably strikes the them as crazy. Not the same audience at all. Well, um, but it's just a question of how often do you go to the movies anyway? And what are you well, going to go see when you I think Lionsgate knows what they're doing. So does Amazon. I would, These I are would, the people I would who so. made Manchester by the Sea. Um, and I think that they're going to spend, and I think they're going to make sure uh, that it works. Um, but the other thing is, um, I think this is an Oscar contender, and I think it will go far. So, but of course, it has to do well at the box office. And to, also, uh, well, that's, it's the reviews are there for the re- sure. The reviews are definitely there, and even the even the people you would think wouldn't it's necessarily go. It's at ninety-seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Right, sorry, for whatever that's worth. But no, it's true. It's been it's been a warmly received movie because it's a crowd pleaser that also. It hits the diversity button, and there's a lot of other stuff going on there. Yeah, so I guess the question is, if it's perceived too much as a comedy, does that work against it in the award season where comedies are often not awarded? That is is an issue, and and the fact that it's it's more of a a dramedy, I think, is, is a good thing. And, and the fact that it's a true story, that it's authentic, and and that it's it's telling a, a real romance, I think that authenticity is going to count for a lot. Also, what we've been talking about, the fact that it's a a, a diverse cultural story that represents a part of the world that people haven't seen that much of. It's well, good. speaking of, of representing parts of the world people haven't seen much of, you get this amazing story up this week about the Buena Vista Social Club sequel that Lucy Walker directed, which was taken out of her hands. This is a long, gestating story, and I have to commend you, and for, for the amount of time that you put into it, because it shows in the work, and this kind of in-depth piece is an amazing cautionary tale for filmmakers and for the industry itself about what it you know, what, what can happen when two people don't see eye to eye on something and how that fallout can be drawn out. And it's an interesting contrast to the, the Lord and Miller situation because on a different scale, it's a similar situation where you have totally different expectations of who actually is controlling this work. And at the end of the day, nobody wins. You know, this movie came out very different version than what Lucy Walker put out there, and people don't even really want to see it anyway, as far as I can tell. Well, she wasn't around to promote it. And, you know, this is, I think, what's so sad about this story as I was pursuing it and listening to the different sides, and each of them has a different um, version of, of the story, I might add, very different. Um, uh, I would say that nobody wins, and, and I, I can't really fathom um, how it came to be, except that uh, Lucy Walker, who is a very experienced and very 
accomplished filmmaker and has been uh, nominated twice for the Oscar. So we can assume that she's a name, that she might have had some value uh, in terms of pulling people in. Uh, and a lot of people were looking forward to it. They wanted to see it at Sundance. It had a good booking at the front of the festival. And then they pulled it at the last minute. And we all, that so does not happen because it's such a hard thing, you know, to get one of those slots at Sundance. It's such an advantage to launch a movie with that. So then you're running into Broad Green, which is a distribution company that has had some some travails and issues and and inexperienced (laughs) people at the helm who don't necessarily know the the best way to do things. You're trying and, to be diplomatic about it, but basically they just don't seem to know what they're doing. And yeah, weird. I'm, I'm afraid I, I think you're right. And and also um, there were uh, inexperienced producers, to say the least, who didn't give the production reins to Lucy Walker and her partner, uh, Julian Cotherly. And and they basically were running, you know, they didn't have access to the talent. The Better Vista Social Club people were controlled by a management company. It's all very complicated. But finally, the lesson is when you go into any situation when there are uh, bands, members, or uh, people who, talent, who have some control over over the uh, end result, you better find out what the deals are so that you don't get caught unawares. And it turned out they had basically final cut authority uh, against Lucy's final cut authority. And in the end, Broad Green went with the band. So one day we'll have to uh, see if somebody can dig up the uh, official Lucy Walker version of this. I'd love to see it. We can assess it. So all this time, and we haven't even got a chance to really dig into Transformers. I'm shocked you didn't uh, cut me off in my intro to bring it up. You didn't uh, make time for that two-and-a-half-hour masterpiece earlier this weekend? I uh, tend to go with my own uh, taste and uh, time, and I skipped it. Thank you very much. Trust me, it's, it's an experience for what it is, but what it is is more about the dominance of Michael Bay and, and, and the impact that he has had on, on a certain scale of a movie than anything else. Um, it's not like I won my two and a half hours back. I think it was a constructive experience in terms of the way that I wanted to see this kind of a movie. Um, but I saw another movie the next day, which I can't quite talk about yet, but the new Planet of the Apes movie is just such a better example of what you can do when you have those sort of resources at your disposal. So it is worth pointing out that just because Michael Bay is telling us that Transformers is the market standard for big, loud, flashy blockbusters does not mean that that is the only way they have to be. So you don't have to go see Transformers this weekend. You could go see Big Sick. You could go see The Bad Batch, or if you're in New York, go see The Ornithologist. There's so many different options. And when I see something like Transformers trying to send a message that this is the only thing you need to see right now, it just reminds me of how important it is for us to remind people that there's so many other things out there. I uh, think the IndieWire audience knows that, and I do also highly recommend uh, The War for the Planet of the Apes. I've been a fan of this trilogy from the beginning, and I thought Matt Reeves did a great job with the last one, and he continues in that tradition with Andy Serkis um, on this one. So next week we'll talk a little bit about Baby Driver, which is finally coming out. Maybe we can squeeze in a little bit about Despicable Me 3 if there's time for that. And uh, I'm sure something will happen in the news cycle that will shake up everything else that we want to talk about. But fingers crossed nobody gets fired. Until then, and have a good weekend. You too, Eric.
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.